This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. Look for their newest line, Pristine, the only complete line of pet food made with responsibly sourced ingredients. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Hello and welcome to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Alice Marcus-Krieg. And I'm Carmen DeVito. And we are collectively Groundworks, Inc. We design and build gardens in New York City and the surrounding area. And our show brings the culture to horticulture. Yes. So today we are winding down our series on the USDA zones. Today we're going to talk to Alaska, zone two. This is the very pink section of the USDA map, and it's only located, Zone 2, in the state of Alaska. Yes. Fairbanks being the most recognized city in Zone 2, and the minimum extreme temperatures are, ready for this, negative 35 to negative 45. Wow. Chilly chill. (laughs) It felt like that here, like a little bit of Alaska dipped down earlier. (laughs) We got touched by Alaska. Everything turned black. Black and and dark. Dark. (laughs) Suddenly, it was like we went from 60 degrees in New York to 30. And it was. All the tropicals just were shot. Yeah, that was it. It was, we got kind of teased all fall. We had like unseasonably warm temperatures and And I'm liking this polar vortex that we're getting. Yeah, thank you, Dave. (laughs) Sound effects. Good sound effects. (laughs) So then it dipped in and then it like went away. It like plucked out all all the heat and the warmth. (laughs) (laughs) It was not. And left us with the bones. I know. We were getting text messages. One of our clients said, my garden right now looks like an episode of Stranger Things. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I said, exactly. I'm sure it does. Exactly. <laughs> so on the second half of the show, we're going to speak to author Marta McDowell and learn about another frontier, not a zone, but instead another pioneer of our childhood. Yeah. The Laura Ingalls Wilder book that she just wrote, Half Pint, and the landscapes that shaped the land, the West, with a detailed and early explanation of nature that still inspires us. So today, Zone 2, the frontier of horticulture in Fairbanks, Alaska. So let me tell you a little bit about our guest. Uh, we have on the show today first a gardener, a grower, Cindy Warbelow. I hope I'm pronouncing the name right. Yes. Um, Cindy is the owner of the Plant Kingdom Greenhouse and Nursery. Cindy has a real hearty Alaskan bio. She's lived in Alaska all her life, first in the Eskimo villages of Shungnyak, I hope that's right, uh, Unalaklit and Selawik, and then in the interior. She also spent time growing up in a roadhouse on the Alaska Highway. Her father operated a bush air service, and her mother operated a lodge. She was homeschooled because the nearest school was 25 miles away. She has a BS in biology from the University of Alaska Fairbanks and an MS in zoology via the University of Michigan, also having done postgraduate work at Oregon State. 
She's been active in local agricultural issues and the establishment of the Tanana Valley Farmers Market and development of Two Rivers Agricultural Project, growing brome hay and marketing veggies at the Tanama Valley Farmers Market. She's mostly involved in production and retail sales of bedding plants, perennials, and nursery stock, and teaches horticultural classes via local and national garden clubs, co-op extensions, and community school programs. Welcome, Cindy. Hello, thank you. It's 9 a.m. there, is that right? It is, yes. Is the light up or is it dark? <laughs> um, well, <laughs> it's gray. Okay. <laughs> I look uh, directly south toward the Alaska Range, and so here, probably in the next hour, you know, the sun will kind of start coming up over the east and roll across the mountains and set over Denali. So, um, what a we, fasc- we still have some light. What wow. a fascinating landscape you live in. And as I was I reading, agree. and I was reading your, as I was reading your bio, Cindy, I was thinking that you could be, you know, the 21st century wilder. Like you can write a yeah. book, you know, reading your story about the experiences you've had there right. on the new frontier. You can totally write, I think, an amazing book, you know, on that if you ever felt like it. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, my mom has. She's 102 now, and she's living here in Fairbanks in the Pioneers Home, but. She's written a number of books, so she's done that. I don't have to do that now. Ah, (laughs) You lived it, right. (laughs) So what led you to nursery ownership, and how did you come to gardening? Um, Well, you know, I I kind of, as you mentioned, I I grew up in sort of non-gardening areas. Um, The major part of my growing up was kind of at the foot of the Alaska Range and pretty gravelly soil and uh, snow on the mountains, uh, probably two months that it was snow-free on the mountains, and so it was cool. And uh, my brothers and I uh, grew uh, garden peas and nasturtiums, but we also had a Shetland pony so that ran loose, and so pretty much our garden uh, usually went to him. And what, then, um, <laughs> what a beautiful <laughs> visual was, you just gave me. <laughs> <laughs> nasturtiums, well, then, ponies. Uh, when I, after I was uh, finished college and was, was living here in Fairbanks, I remember the first time I walked into Ann's Greenhouse, which is a local greenhouse still going, and, uh, you know, all the plants were on pallets on the floor, and you walked in the greenhouse and looked down the length of it, and I remember it was a lissom that was just, I didn't even mm-hmm. know what a lissom was, but I was just blown away with, with the beauty of it, and mm-hmm. that I remember that first year I, I bought a six-pack of petunias and uh, planted them by, I was living in a little log cabin, and I planted them in my uh, little garden. And the next year I went back there and asked for purple picatees, and they were like, purple picatees? <laughs> but it was, I, I didn't know you had to say petunia also. <laughs> um, <laughs> but then um, after I got married, uh, we moved about 25 miles east of Fairbanks and uh, started, built our own house and built, uh, bought 25 acres of land and decided we wanted a truck farm. And uh, neither one of us knew a whole lot about it, but we cleared about five acres of land and and got involved in growing vegetables, and, and that was kind of how I got involved in starting the farmer's market here in Fairbanks. And um, we had a 9-by-20-foot homemade greenhouse, you know, with glass windows, wooden. And I started sneaking in a few six-packs of flowers here and there in among the veggie starts. And um, that's literally how it got started. Then we ended up building a general store out there and um, and eventually had 10 greenhouses, and it got into a, it turned into a pretty big operation. But... Um, my real love was, was the plants, and so about 18 years ago I moved here in, into Fairbanks and bought a piece of property, south-facing property about three miles east of town, and uh, carved out the, the Plant Kingdom greenhouse and nursery. So mm-hmm. um, that's, that's kind of how I got started. 
I would imagine also, I was thinking about that Alyssum story. I would imagine also that color must just be absolutely amazing because from what I've read, I've never been to Alaska, like full disclosure, but I've spent okay. a lot of time in, I've spent a lot of time in, in the northern reaches of Maine. Um, so I feel like I kind of have an understanding of some of that light and the colors just pop because it's so gray and flat, the light. Yeah, it's, and actually, I mean, we we have beautiful light in the summer, you know, because starting in, I mean, we, you know, we we aren't 24 hours of daylight, but we're 24 hours of daylight in terms of, you know, it's light all night in the summer. Mm-hmm. And uh, so we, yes, the colors, and this is not just a, you know, just a myth, it is uh, true, that the colors are amazing. I mean, you don't have the intense heat and mm-hmm. light, and so the angle of the light is such that the colors, I mean, people come to Fairbanks, I remember uh, tumorous, tumorous begonias do wonderfully here, and um, when we had the store, we would have a lot of tourists coming through, and they would say, where do you get your begonia tumors? Right, and, right. Um, they come from California, where everybody else is coming from. <laughs> but they just, um, they get bigger here, Yeah, you know, they, um, and they, the colors are amazing, and yeah, we always... Bill, I read in the greenhouse magazines about like how was the growing season, how the weather affected the, the season, and we to some degree are not weather affected in the spring because people are going to buy plants. I mean, mm-hmm. they're you know it's it's intense. Gardening mm-hmm. is intense in Fairbanks. <laughs> yeah, tell us about the microclimates of Fairbanks, um, and and the like idiosyncrasies of your zone. Um, well, you know, I think we can, you know, as you say, we qualify for zone two. Um, you know, there's probably some, well, maybe some ones in some spots in Fairbanks, but there's definitely fours as well. And mm-hmm. we're um, here at, you know, where I am, we're um, a little bit higher. Um, we're a little above the, the main valley floor. And so we, you know, we do things that are up to zone four. Wow. Mm-hmm. There's other places that, you know, are probably our only zone two. There's lot of little microclimates and um so that that makes it fun because you know we can we can there's always you're always trying to experiment with things and improve that you can grow something that is just a little beyond what you expect for fairbanks um so things like hostas and a stilby that you know are, are probably pretty commonplace for you folks it's you know, we're, we're proud of the ones that we have. <laughs> yeah. Well, they're, they're, um, when I was looking over your plant list and, and your offerings, mm-hmm. I was very surprised because, Carmen, uh, it's a lot of the same plants that we use, like mm-hmm. phenomenally. Yeah. And it was very exciting when we initially spoke, Cindy, to talk about the, the aspect of using those plants um, and kind of pushing the zone limit, right? Yeah, and I think mm-hmm. gardeners mm-hmm. do that. I think they do it generally. I mean, we try, we've planted southern magnolias. Mm-hmm. We've pushed, you know, I think it's just gardeners' nature to, to be challenged and to try new things, mm-hmm. you know, because you've got a new season ahead of you and you're, you've got space to fill, right? You know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Right, right. And in Alaska, I would well, imagine... We're all gamblers. You yes. Know? We, you know, if, you, yeah. if you plant something and it comes back the next year, you're, you know, you feel like you've won. Yeah. Exactly. Exactly. I like the analogy of the gambler. Mama it, needs a new pair of shoes. Yeah. <laughs> we're gambling all the time yeah. in New York. Yeah. <laughs> right. On so many levels. <laughs> yes. So tell us about some the rainfall um, and some temperature swings and how that affects pushing of plants 
Okay. Well, you know, I think technically we're kind of on the desert side. You know, mm. um, I think the, the annual rainfall for Fairbanks, of course, it varies a lot from season to season, but um, time of year, but it's around 11 to 12 inches. And, you know, to show you the extremes in the state, I was just in Ketchikan this summer and had my picture taken by a, 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 a huge water gauge or rain gauge they have there, and they get more like 140 inches. So, you know, 10 10, 12 times what we get. Wow. Um, but we get, um, you know, in the summer, um, we get adequate rainfall. I mean, it's, uh, I was in, at the perennial plant conference in uh, Denver this, this July, and I was amazed about how much talk there was about the xeric landscapes. And, you know, we really, I don't look at Fairbanks that way. Um, it's, it's pretty lush in the summertime. Mm-hmm. And so and in our snow, you know, we get snow in the winter, of course. We just got a whole bunch. Um, but we don't get, you know, we don't get snow like you get. <laughs> it's not the, you know, it's not the amount, and it's a real dry snow. It's dry, so yeah. We get pretty nice, um, you know, it's a pretty nice um, rain situation in the summertime. It's, it's, um, and then as far as um, just temperature swings, you know, we um, are, we, we kind of look at June 1st as the frost-free date, that, I mean, that's, that's traditionally been it. Mm-hmm. Um, I've planted my garden as early as the third week in April. just depends on the year, and, and we're great believers in row crop fabric. You know, when I plant my garden, I usually cover it with that for a while, and, you know, mm-hmm. for a few days and things longer than that. Mm-hmm. Um, but we, and then usually we, it used to be that you could figure out a frost mid-August this year. We didn't, I didn't have a killing frost where I am until the end of September. Wow. So, um, there's, and there are places, of course, the lower, like Goldstream Valley, um, where they did have a frost probably in, in, in late August. Mm-hmm. So there's quite a bit of variation depending on your, ele- mainly depending on elevation around Fairbanks. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, so, uh, people, you know, a lot of people, um, do have small greenhouses that they grow their tomatoes and their squash and cucumbers in, but, um, here on, on where I am, I can, you know, I had squash outside, uh, tomato plants. Of course, I choose varieties of tomatoes that, that are a little bit, you may sacrifice a little bit of quality of production for a little bit of cold hardiness. But um, people even, you know, grow corn. It's, that's, again, something that you brag about. Right. If, if you're successful. But, um, Knee high by the 4th of July. Uh, <laughs> is that the same there? Yeah. <laughs> Depends. <laughs> Um, so what's the best seller at your nursery? Um, what are know, people most craving? Of course, we, we, do, be, we do bedding plants, uh, both flowers and veggies, and um, we're kind of known for our hanging baskets. Um, and we also, of course, through the summer do perennials, uh, herbaceous perennials and trees and shrubs. Best seller, um, you know, I, I don't know if I could really pick out a best seller. Every year there's something, you know, that kind of grabs attention maybe because we were in short supply or there was a mm. lot of hype about it or, you know, there may be unrelated reasons. But um, people in Fairbanks are pretty serious vegetable gardens, mm-hmm. but they're equally serious about their flowers. You know, we have lots of hanging baskets and lots of floral displays at the commercial places in the summer as well, of course, as homes. And, um, you know, we're as far as... Uh, Best sellers, you know, we have some things that, that are kind of fun. You know, we can do the blue poppy here. Um, we're ah. not the capital of the blue poppy right. um, growing, yeah. you know, around Palmer 
uh, Anchorage area probably can do better with them than we do, but you you can grow blue poppies here, so that's kind of fun. Um, and um, we every year, you know, like in the trees and shrubs, what people are, it's you know, we do we actually can grow apple trees here, and there's a lot mm. of grafted varieties that. Um, but you know, I I've got uh, Norland and Parklands in my yard, and last summer I. My honey crisp made it through one of our coldest winters we've had for a while. So, you know, the apples weren't very big, but I, I'm proud of the few honey crisps that I got. Um, so there's not, in, in, in perennial-wise, um, people, that's something, you know, people get through the bedding plant, you know, they get their annuals in, and then uh, through the summer we, we sell um, perennials. So it's a pretty, I wouldn't say there's necessarily a favorite. There's, uh, but people want color. People so they want color. Yeah, they they want, want lots yeah, of color. They do, and they want food. <laughs> yeah. Right, yeah. I was going to ask you about the farmer's market that you helped um, develop. Before mm-hmm. before that was started, what was produce like in Fairbanks? And was it hard to get good, fresh produce? Um, or did pe- people really just have to grow it themselves to get it? Because I'm imagining it's coming from pretty far, right? Mm-hmm. From the lower 48 well, or Canada? Yeah, far, but you know we're only three hours from Seattle by air, so okay. Um, so things, you know, uh, you know the the box we have our box stores here. You know our Fred Meyers and our Safeways, mm. and uh, you know they're well supplied. And then we also mm. have uh, within the last few years we have a food co- a local food co-op, oh. which buys local as much as it can. But you know they ship in this time of year. Everything's pretty much or most things are shipped in, mm-hmm. other than the storage. Um, Cabbage, potatoes, carrots. Right. And mm-hmm. so we, you know, we have access to pretty nice produce, but the farmer's market is, it has grown tremendously. It's a, it's a huge thing every Wednesday and Saturday, and there is actually a Sunday one now. And uh, lots of beautiful fresh produce there. But um, I, you know, in the wintertime, we, you know, we have everything, you know, avocados and asparagus and peppers and, you know, um, all, all those things. Are, are flown either trucked in or flown in, and even by barge. You know, things leave leave Seattle Friday, and they're up here Monday or Tuesday. Oh, mm-hmm. that's interesting. That's not that's not bad. I mean, right. it takes no, we're pro- not as isolated as we used to be. <laughs> when when my parents first came up here in the forties, you know, they got they got one shipment of fresh, um, you know, fresh food in the fall by barge, and uh, that, that was, was it. it. Wow. And, uh, Ma, you know, mom talks about. Craving apples, <laughs> waking up in the night thinking about it, fresh apples. Wow! Yeah, yeah. So it was a meat-heavy diet. Yeah, <laughs> not a lot of citrus. Yeah, and dry. You know, a lot of canned food and mm-hmm. um, and you know dried dried food and um, mm-hmm. right. Yeah. Do you do you have much of a demand for like the tropical plants, um, bedding plants like coleus or? You know, fuchsia. fuchsias and and yes. yeah, yeah. Yep. Fuchsias do great in Fairbanks, mm-hmm. um, and you know, and of course, there's a lot of sun-loving coleus now, so mm-hmm. we, we sell a lot of those. Um, you know, uh, we do callas, um, but those, of course, would be done in in pots, you know, or in porch pots. Right. Um, yeah, and colocations do uh-huh. well in porch pots. Uh huh. So, uh-huh. Uh, Brugmansia, in beautiful Brugmansia in, in large pots, mm-hmm. South Jack, um, hibiscus, uh, you know, those sorts of things are treated as annuals, usually in, in containers. Now, your garden shuts, your nursery center shuts down, right, about mid-September? Yes, yes. We, um, 
you know, we'll start um, start firing up greenhouses uh, late February. Mm-hmm. Um, a few of us will be, you know, working doing like getting begonia tubers planted and some of the early, just early things. Mm-hmm. And then my crew will start about the middle of March, and we will open for business the first of April. We'll go from nothing to uh, two greenhouses full in two weeks. Right. And then um, we're open until the first of September. So yeah. right. That's the season. And you have a cafe and, at the at the that's year round. Is that right? At the no, garden. No, that center? was uh, that was actually when when we had the uh, general store in Two Rivers. Yes. Oh, we had okay. The greenhouse cafe out there that was uh, famous for its pies, and we had seating out in the greenhouse for um, for the cafe. So yeah, but um, I I've I've had my um, the, the part of my life is going to be involved in food service. <laughs> <laughs> You're done. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I hear ya. <laughs> yeah. When I uh, I waited tables from the time I was, you know, fifteen until uh-huh. through college. And then when I moved to New York I said to myself, I am not gonna wait tables anymore. And sure enough, I waited tables, you know, because I needed to for about three weeks and then I was like, Nope. <laughs> I'm just it's a good skill to have. It is good sides to it, but yes. Yeah. It's um it's a lot of work. <laughs> it is. It is. And the money is good, you know, if you're at a good... It is. Yeah. Right. I love getting tips. <laughs> so can we talk for a second about the pipeline and land use and how that has changed the environment? Because um, that's kind of the one thing people... Everybody knows about the pipeline in Alaska. So I just would love to hear kind of your local take on that. Well, um, Chris, I was here during the craziest you know, the craziness of the time that it was built, which mm-hmm. was uh, pretty impressive. And, um, you know, as far as how it directly affects gardening, um, you know, from a business aspect, just because, you know, it, it, it was not the pipeline only, but just the development of Alaska that kind of came with it. Right. You know, in the last, um, you know, 17 years or 18 years or so, we've gone from, you know, really pretty much, Maybe Safeway was the only, you know, to to a whole box store region just a couple miles from me, you know, with Home Depot and Lowe's and, you know, Walmart and Fred Meyer and all that. Right. So, you know, that has added a, a competitive aspect to it for us. Um, some people blame it for, you know, it, I mean, it's hard on independent retailers like we are, but it maybe it is, but it also exposes gardening even more, you know, so I yeah. guess it's a kind of a mixed bag. Um uh, and as far as land use, you know, I mean, it's probably, um, it's brought people mm-hmm. or, you know, for us, that's probably, um, you know, more business, of course, right now with oil prices low and, um, Alaska in some ways kind of sold its soil to soul, maybe soil too. Yeah, I was going to say, <laughs> to the, yeah. You know, to the, the oil industry, um, you know, the economy is, is suffering a bit right now, but Alaska has always kind of been a boom and bust place for, you know, the time that I've lived here. Mm-hmm. And um, we, we always survive. Mm-hmm. And if we personally have been lucky at the Plant Kingdom, um, you know, maybe we haven't grown as fast as we would if we weren't in a bit of this slump, but but we've got faithful, strong customers, and as I say, people are pretty serious about um, growing plants. And so, and I, and I would imagine that the pipeline brought people to work, and then some people stayed, right? Mm-hmm. So the population of right. Fairbanks has 
I'm sure grown right. benefited. It's, yeah, right. it's grown, and um, so it's it's been a you know probably a mixed blessing. Um, you know, I'm one who loves to have open country that's unspoiled, and so I always I I hope to see things like the you know remain Arctic Wildlife Range remain mm-hmm. yeah. <laughs> intact. Mm-hmm. Well, we have to ask you um, finally about climate change. You, you being an Alaska native and having lived there many years, can you tell us what you've observed and you know with, with regard to that um, in your area and the future of gardening with respect to how the climate is is changing a bit? Right. Well, um, you know the the growing season and not in the time. I mean, even in the time that I've been gardening, you know, it's it has um, definitely extended. And um, the thought of, you know, growing apple trees or that sort of thing is, um, you know, is is new. Mm -hmm. Um, But basically, you know, uh, in the last 100 years or so, I think they say that, you know, this this season has gone, say, in the early 1900s, 85 days, you know, now we're at 120 plus. and there's been a bit of a drop in, in precipitation in that period of time. Um, you know, we're a couple couple degrees Fahrenheit warmer than, than we were in the early 1900s. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, I think of Fairbanks um, as the perennials that you saw were, you know, um, Asiatic lilies, delphiniums. Fairbanks is, is known for its delphiniums even now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know... The peonies, you know, those were those are sort of some of the basic ones. And so now, you know, we have, well, you saw, we have a huge list of perennials that we grow. And sometimes people say, well, you know, how can this be? And, of course, part of it is, a part of it is just climate change, of course, you know, with um, tissue pro- culture propagation and mm-hmm. viruses. And there's definitely more interest nationwide, I think, in perennials. Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely it's extended our season. There's just... No doubt about that. Right. And um, that's, there's some pluses to that. Overall, I'm not so sure there's pluses, but right. um, mm-hmm. that's one of the, you know, one of the, definitely there's, there's been a change for us right. in the interior here. So what are you doing for the winter? How do you, how do you spend your time in the winter? Looking at seeds? Um, picking out seeds? <laughs> yes, right. Right now we're in the middle of ordering seeds and plants and uh yeah, getting ready ready for spring. Um, everything's pretty much tucked away. Um, we've got all of our trees and shrubs wrapped for moose protection and uh, oh, yes. wrapped for moose protection. <laughs> Wait, yeah. how do you how do you do that? Moose how and do bowls. <laughs> how do you protect from um, moose? They're so massive. Well, they are, and you know, I have my yard fenced. So, but of course, okay. my you know, I have a, I only have about a seven foot fence, and a moose could come over that if they decided to. But I have my compost pile outside, so I donate what I you know. That's yeah. my donation. Right. Um, but they are, you know, they we wrap some of our real sensitive trees out that are you know with the the row crop fabric and mm-hmm. um, just clothespin it on. It doesn't take much to discourage them usually, but they are and. Um, they they can be an issue with and they there's a moose that likes every kind of tree or shrub. You know, <laughs> apples are a favorite, but there's other. I mean, so there's no I've list of moose-proof plants. No, there's not really no. moose-proof plants. <laughs> yeah, 
Yeah, we have a we have a list of deer proof, but it doesn't. Ugh. It's not. It's they're if they're hungry. If they're hungry, they they're gonna eat what they eat. They're gonna come. Yeah, you know? right. I was in uh, yeah. Kansas. My husband's from Kansas, and we went mm-hmm. to um, a bison range where they where they raise them for meat. Mm-hmm. And I and mm-hmm. I noticed that of course it wasn't fenced in, and I said. How do you, you know, how do you manage them? How do you keep them in? And the owner said, if if they like it, they stay, but there's no keeping them in or keeping them out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Food. Just keep keep giving them food. Right. Yeah. <laughs> right. Well, I think, you know, I figure it's part of just, you know, and as soon as you think, well, maybe we should just have, you know, more local plants and things mm. that they don't like as well. But they, you know, they browse on natives as well. And, and we pretty much you know, live with native plants. So the locals, if they're going to have an ornamental garden, they, they want something besides native plants. Yeah, right. yeah. exactly. Yeah, yeah. Well, yeah. Cindy, we have uh, hit our timeline, but okay. you have painted a beautiful picture of Zone 2. Thank you for sharing um, gardening with us in Fairbanks. And we wish you good luck for the spring season. Yes. Okay, well, thank you, and, uh, you know, when when you get to Alaska, come look us up. I absolutely will. I would love to come up and see you guys. Yeah, we would love it. Thank you. Thanks for being okay. on the show. Okay, thank you. Nice talking to both of you. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to go on the prairie with Marta McDowell. Stay tuned. This episode is brought to you by Castor and Pollux, maker of America's number one organic pet food, Organics. You put a lot of care and thought into what you eat. After all, you're a food radio listener. That thoughtfulness goes hand in paw with how you feed your pets. Purposeful pet food doesn't happen by accident. Castor and Pollux scours the earth to carefully select the best organic and responsibly sourced ingredients. New Pristine from Castor and Pollux is the only complete line of pet food made with ingredients that are responsibly raised, caught, or grown. Feed your dog or cat the new standard, like grass-fed beef, wild-caught fish, and vegetables grown without synthetic fertilizers or chemical pesticides. Pristine from Castor and Pollux. Purposeful pet food. Learn more at heritageradionetwork.org slash pets. Hi, welcome back to We Dig Plants on the Heritage Radio Network. I hope you guys felt really cold <laughs> during the last episode. We're on the frontier we're on today. The, now we're going to the frontier. We're going to go a little bit further south with our guest, Marta McDowell. Um, Marta has been on the show before, um, and she has a new book out called The Landscapes of Laura Ingalls Wilder, The Frontier Landscapes That Inspire the Little House Books, published by Timber Press. Welcome, Marta. 
Thank you. Happy to be here. Yes. So Marta has been with us um, a couple of times. She's yes. an old friend to us here at We Dig Plants. Two books that we've discussed with her, All the President's Gardens, which was our number one listen to show last year, and Beatrix Potter. Yeah, great um, book. So we encourage you to listen to all of uh, our podcasts with Marta, but also read her books because she's a fabulous writer. So Marta, Laura Ingalls Wilder, Half Pint. <laughs> <laughs> yes, can you hear that music yes. playing in the background? Every Yeah, like I think it soothes me and I get... I still like soothe myself and put myself to bed with that music in my head. Yeah, my, like and when I see it now, it's like it's not on, it's on occasionally, like yeah. on some random station. YouTube. I get <laughs> I I get drawn in. Like yeah. I start watching if I if I'm flipping around the channels and I see it, I'm yeah. I'm just drawn to it. Yeah. I can't help myself. You know? I think most girls can remember reading these books and being fascinated with because it really was the first exposure. To frontier life, you know, yeah. for all of us suburban like 1960s and 70s. And the family was—I know—and the family was just so nice. Like, yeah. the, Pa was so sweet, and Mom was so wise, and yeah. you know, the girls—you know—they were a little rambunctious, but they were good. You they know, were good people, right? So, Marta, let's talk about this book. Um, it's broken into two categories: a life on the land and the wilder gardens. So just to give our listeners a little bit of scope, Life on the Land, if you remember, is the Wisconsin Woods. It's a New York farm, which, which was actually the boy version of the book and um, Almanzo. Then it's back to Laura Ingalls and the Kansas Prairie, Minnesota and Iowa and the Dakotas, all the cold zones. Yeah. I remember all of them moving around so much to these different... Uh, locations and landscapes and of course the architecture of the houses and the sod houses so let's talk marta about kind of how you came to half pint (laughs) (laughs) well i think unlike you i started with the book Uh uh-huh and really was more of a book person than, than the TV show. I think I was the wrong age. It came on right when I was in college. Right. Not watching much TV. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I find people come to know Laura and Laura Ingalls Wilder in, in both of those ways. Uh, I think that the, the books have never been out of print. They've sold millions of copies since they yeah. first came out in the 30s and 40s. Yeah. And in the same way, I don't think the television show has ever been off the air since the 1970s. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But the books, the books, I read the books. Yeah. Um, they came to the books first. Yeah, too. I came to the books first. And then, of course, the TV show. But the TV show was fine and it was entertaining, but the detail wasn't there. And I remember, and this is what's so amazingly nerdy about your book is the horticulture (laughs) and the landscape. (laughs) And I'm so thankful that you, because it was always kind of there in the back of my mind, but then you like targeted it and made it real. And that's what's so amazing is this perspective. Well, thank you for noticing that how incredibly nerdy I am because, you know, it's like I go through and mark every single mention of a 
plants and, you know, yeah. anything about the geology and, the you know, kind of the natural world. Mm-hmm. So that was my take on this is, well, no one had ever really written about the natural world of Laura Ingalls Wilder and the natural history. So that gave me a lot of scope. Well, and she really, I didn't realize that she went on, you know, like she went on to really become a serious horticulturalist. Yeah, neither did I. So the biggest surprise to me in kind of starting on this, you know, my own little journey here was that she really lived most of her life in Missouri. Mm -hmm. She lived in the Ozarks on a farm, and she and her husband finally made a go of it on this farm in Mansfield, Missouri, that they called Rocky Ridge Farm. And... You know, she gardened her whole life. Maybe not the kind of gardening that we tend to do, unless you're really a gardener. You know, you're a hardcore kitchen gardener. Um, But, uh, you know, they certainly knew how to raise plants. And I was surprised at, you know, how many common threads there are between then and now. Yeah. Yeah. And that's what makes this book so timeless, is there's also a lot of very practical information that, of course, was useful to their survivability and longevity, right, on the prairie. And then now we're so removed from it, but it's so dear to us. So let's talk for a second about honest agriculture. Yeah, you know, agriculture was something viewed in the, you know, the early decades and the first centuries of our history as, you know, sort of the the thing that was going to make the common man and the American citizen, mm-hmm. you know, so that, that that was the right way to go. Even Benjamin Franklin said, right. you know, that's the honest way to make a living. Mm-hmm. Right. And this so is that's our... part of why, you know, our, our kind of direction was always west, move west. There's a lot of land. Everybody can have their piece of land. Mm-hmm. Right. It's very American. I mean, because in Europe, people were going to the cities because the land was depleted. There was no more land. Right. So they went in a completely opposite direction. Right, Marta? There was nowhere to go. Well, and the land, frankly, was owned by the upper class. Yeah. Right? So places like England, there were things like the enclosure movements where they were enclosing the common lands and people were getting sort of thrown off. So, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. gee, look at this different way of approaching it and giving everyone their potential for their quarter section or their section of land. Right, yeah. right. So I went, th- as I was going through the book um, in, in preparation for today's show, um, and I, I, it kind of follows the, the book, the book lineage. So, and of course, there's just plants like peppered throughout the entire book. It must have been so incredible for you to do all the research and put this together. Well, the most fun was I got to find so many things that I thought, ooh, that'll be interesting. I'll look into that. Yeah. Mm-hmm. How do you stop? It's incredible. Mm-hmm. Like, I was mesmerized and overwhelmed, frankly. How long did it take you to write this and, um, and get, gather all of this research? So, this is a funny story. I had just sent in my manuscript for all the president's gardens. Mm-hmm. Just. So I get a call from Tom Fisher, my publisher at Timber Press, the editor, 
And he says, you know, would you be interested in writing a book about Laura Ingalls Wilder? <laughs> so, you know, of course. Yeah. Uh, like, you know, my heart rate goes up. And he said, well, there's a catch. We want to have it out in 2017, oh, which meant that I had to research and write it in two years, which is a solid year less than I would normally say I have to have. Uh-huh. So it was crazy. I, I was writing. I was, like, giving talks during the day about all the president's gardens and then going back to my hotel room <laughs> and writing about half pint. Yeah. <laughs> well, I, rem- I actually remember the teaser um, at the end of the show. Carmen and I have been, like, counting down to yes. this show. Yes. That's right. Because at the end of all the president's gardens, we said, well, what, you know, what do you have coming up? And you gave us a little. And we were so excited. (laughs) Yeah. I'm looking forward to. Like giddy about this book. (laughs) Yeah. I read them. I read them so many times. Mm -hmm. It wasn't just that I read the book once. I read them over and over. Well, and then you read them to Max, right? To your son. Actually, No. You Max, didn't? no, was Max not- is was not. He was really into animals, but uh, he didn't. He wasn't into that. He was into Greek mythology as a kid and monsters okay. and stuff. So it because was, I want to read the you should the front um, the New York Farm the one about Almanzo Farmer Boy. I'm going to yes. start reading that to That's Alden. A, yeah. yeah. To to my son now. So let's get into some of the plants, right? Yes. Um, so Wisconsin plants. Beets and nuts. Can you elaborate on that a little bit? (laughs) Sure. So, you know, they had a big kitchen garden in Wisconsin. The one that she describes in most detail, strangely enough, the the family didn't plant. It was planted by people who had rented the house while the Ingalls family was in what today is Kansas. And they actually came back to Wisconsin. Uh, You know, they kind of left Kansas under a cloud and come back to Wisconsin, they take their farm back over from the people who evidently couldn't make a go of it, and there is a kitchen garden planted there. And she talks about the beets in particular. And I just thought, oh, beets. What can I learn about beets? Well, beets were a Mediterranean crop, sort of native, a native plant. So right. first it would have been a foraged plant. And for those of you who like beet greens, you will be cheered up to know that really it started out as a leaf vegetable. Yeah. And then way back, like Roman times, um, they started selecting it for the size of its root. Mm-hmm. And so it really is a very, very old food crop. It was probably appealing not just because of the greens, but because of the sweetness. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Well, at one time, they thought that beets were going to be the sugar for the world. And then the French thought this, and they were investing all this money into beet production. And then uh, cane sugar was discovered. (laughs) There was the end of that. (laughs) Right. (laughs) And that was the end of that bubble. Exactly. (laughs) (laughs) So nuts play a big role, too. Yes. So, you know, it's fall, right? I was just at the town dump this morning um, dropping off refuse from my garden and looking around because I just can't help myself. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there are piles of black walnuts. Well, of course, in the Ingalls day, they would have, like, picked them all up, brought them home, 
and somehow cracked them. <laughs> right. <it's> not easy. <laughs> no, mm-hmm. no, it's horrible. Uh, but foraging, you know, it, it's something that is very uh, kind of shishi now. You go to a restaurant, <laughs> they say, you know, these are our wild forage mushrooms. But then it was part of living. It was yeah. part of eking out an existence in the clearing in the forest. Mm-hmm. So, you know, nuts would have, this would have been the season. You would have gathered up all of the nuts and... and uh, and then they keep so well over the winter, you right. know. Um, I mean, it's one of the things that you can eat. Well, and you and, can grind and, them and make flour. Yeah, and, you know. and it's nutritious, you right. know. Yeah. My mother, um, I grew up in Italy as a young child, and my mother and father both grew up on farms, and chestnuts were, like, critical mm-hmm. for them, and not just for themselves, but also for their hogs and their other animals. Um, the nuts and other things, and things like beets were fed to animals as well because there wasn't much else to give them, Marta, you know. Right. Right. So, you know, same. My father grew up in Kentucky on a, a kind of hard scrabble farm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so he always cracked nuts in the fall. Yeah. Um, and actually writing this book kind of brought back these little geysers of memories that I end up yeah. of my own family sort of, yeah. you know, threading through the story. Yeah. Which I hadn't planned on. It sort of came to me unbidden. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. The one thing that I always remember um, about Laura Ingalls Wilder, and this is, <laughs> this is a little off topic, but, but, but to your point about these memories, the word calico and the calico dresses. <laughs> Every time I see it, I'm like, oh, there it is. You know, like I just remember being fascinated as a little girl yeah, the calico fabric. Yeah, <laughs> by that word. Yeah, and it's such an interesting word, right? That you know, it ends with the vowel, and there aren't that many words like that. Right. No. You know, it reminds me of when I was growing up. My mother told me that she, when she was a child in Illinois, she had undergarments made of flour sacks. Right. Now, in my little kid mind, I thought that that meant they wore burlap. <laughs> and, and it wasn't until much later that I saw and felt a flour sack, which was actually a very soft cotton. Cotton, right, exactly. Yeah, yeah. I thought, you know, is this like a hair shirt or something? <laughs> Ouch. <laughs> That's like penance, you know? It's funny yeah, that you... I grew up Catholic. So yeah. <laughs> far off. Marta. <laughs> McDowell. <laughs> I know. Well, my mo- my mother too, a uh, Catholic, and they got two dresses a year. Marta, that's it. Yeah. I don't think it was calico. It was probably some kind of well, cotton. But same with Mary and Laura. Like, yeah, that was the two, two dresses. dresses and, you know. Yeah. For me, it was and it was calico fabric. Yeah, and I, I really, could, I, I never would have made it, guys. I'm just telling you that yeah. I would not have survived. <laughs> oh, I would have been dead by like age four. I think just just from like. Influenza, you know, and and so let's talk about Mary's blindness. Yes, of course, because you can't ignore that, right? Talk right. about medicine and horticulture, right? Yeah, so you know, Mary did go blind mm-hmm. in the books. Uh, Wilder writes that she went blind from scarlet fever, mm-hmm. and you know, nowadays, you know, physicians will look at these things, and, and articles have been written, and they say, really, they think it was probably some form of meningitis mm. that either was concurrent with the scarlet fever or that was, you know, not diagnosed in that way. Mm-hmm. Uh, and in fact, I said this in a 
bookstore in Milwaukee, and a little girl, she was so cute, so I said, you know, Mary did actually go blind. She went blind from meningitis, and this little girl raises her hand. She was about, I don't know, eight years old. She goes, no, she went blind from scarlet fever. <laughs> <laughs> Let's not Just let it go, Marta. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Don't, don't don't argue with the little girl. No, and her fantasy. I mean, I was a little disappointed actually in the books. I kept thinking, oh, I should see more about medicinal use of plants. Yeah, and there isn't that much. There's like a mention of poultices. Poultices. Well, yeah. Charlie mm-hmm. gets into the yellow jackets. Mm-hmm. You know, they put poultices on them. Uh-huh. And then later on, much later, when when Wilder's well into adulthood and her her daughter is grown up. She visits her in California and doses her with Missouri snake root, which I tracked down thanks to the help of a scientist at, I think it was the University of Kansas, who's an expert in, wait for it, echinacea, which is another... Uh, it's the you know mm-hmm. proper botanical name for Missouri snake root. It's a kind of echinacea. Wow. Oh, okay. Wow. So I think, unfortunately, Laura Ingalls Wilder probably knew a lot more about medicinal plants than she ever wrote down. Right, right, right. Um, can we also talk about the sod house? Because that was just such a dream. Yeah. Have of, you ever been in one, Ellis? Um, I've seen them. I've never been in one. I saw one in Tennessee. Yeah, they're so cool and so interesting. You just you're you're, you're cozy. You're snug. It's mm-hmm. not tall. It's like no. It's like a little gnome. Yeah, you know, house. I, yeah. So it became a little obsessed with sod houses, as yeah. you might imagine. Yeah. Um, and so when I was. In South Dakota, of course, I had to go visit one. I, I walked in, and you have to understand, I think I I love gardening because I'm kind of claustrophobic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> so I walk into the sod house. I did not find it cozy. I found it cave-like. It's like, <laughs> get me out of here. Yeah, yeah. It, yeah. I always found it a little spooky. It and, is because there's magical. Not, not much light. No, you know? no. And no. I really didn't understand Marta until I until I actually stood in one this summer and I saw the sod cutting um, machine. You mm-hmm. know, yes. it's, it looks like a big rectangle. I didn't really understand how they were made. Like I read about it and I read it in Little House in the Prairie and saw them in Kansas. But until I was like in one and I saw the roots of these incredible you know, grasses just held all the soil together. Mm-hmm. And they, they had to make a machine to make the sod houses to cut yeah, them. Yeah, and really, I mean, until technology, and it was about, the, it was the late 19th century, yeah. until Americans came up with the technology to, you know, bust the sod, to break the planes. Yeah. That wouldn't have been possible. Right. So, you know, it was it was a technique that certainly was familiar to, especially the Scandinavians. If you go to Norway, you'll still see uh, houses roofed with sod. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. But they needed the technology in order to kind of make it all possible. Uh, and those uh, amazing prairie plants, right? Those roots that go down <laughs> practically to the center of the earth. Right. If you cut them and lift somehow this kind of wet heavy, really solid piece of root and mm-hmm. let it dry out, it's it's pretty impermeable. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it mm-hmm. was so impressive to, yeah. to see that. They had no wood. 
they just had no no timber to make houses with. And to to buy it was very expensive yeah. because right. it all had to be brought in on the railroads. Yeah. Right. I was also fascinated with um, in your book the call out of uh, of one one quote. West of Minnesota, north of Indian Territory. So naturally, grasses and flowers are not the same. And that whole passage kind of speaks to technology and trains and nature passing, right? Like as they moved, time was moving forward, technology was advancing, and trains were now crisscrossing these plains. It's pretty fascinating. Yeah, and... You know, the Ingalls family was a part of that uh, sort of last big rail boom mm-hmm. because her father, Pa, gets a job working with some of the railroad camps. He's paymaster and things like that. Mm-hmm. And so there's, you know, one passage where they're first moving into the Dakota Territory and by the shores of Silver Lake where Wilder, the adult, remembers and writes down sort of her impressions of looking out the train window and what it was like to move at speed. Mm -hmm. It wasn't a very long ride. We actually drove it. You know, it was just a little chunk of western Minnesota. Mm -hmm. But again, at the time, it must have been, seemed like so amazing. Uh, This is going to date me, but I remember the first time I saw color TV, and it was like, (gasps) oh! Yeah. No, it's yes. A, yes you yeah, know? absolutely. And you can't ignore it. You know, it is no. a part of the landscape, unfortunately. Mm-hmm. You know, right. <laughs> that is. Yeah, if you're used to everything walking or horse and buggy, you know, right. speed, that is, would seem really magical. And grasshopper right. plagues. Right. You know? and, I mean, they <laughs> yeah. weren't, you know, the Ingalls family, they weren't doing like horse racing. They weren't, weren't even really moving very quickly on yeah. horses. Mostly they had a team and they yeah. were, you know, going at yeah. that speed. Later on, she, you know, she gets more interested in riding quick horses. Right. Um, but that quote that you mentioned, she puts it in Ma's mouth, which is interesting. You know, Ma was a school teacher. Right. Um, and she's really giving like a little tiny ecology lesson, right? Like, look, we're in a different place. So, mm-hmm. of yes. course, the plants are going to be different. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's I a- did find, you know, in reading the books, that Wilder does a really good job of describing individual ecosystems almost. She wouldn't have called them that, but mm. they are unique. Yeah. Another really interesting point was um, when she talks about the sunsets and love and, you know, this courtship that she had with Almanzo, she talks about these beautiful sunsets that they witnessed together. And I love in the book that you point out, those sunsets are actually an effect of Krakatoa. (laughs) (laughs) Does life get any better than that? I know. Now, I will say that out on the prairie, one thing that is just amazing, any place, you know, kind of from Columbus, Ohio West, when you get in those big open lands, the skies are absolutely amazing. Uh And, you know, know, so the sunsets are really beautiful, and they still have very red sunsets. But I thought, gee, it's interesting that she made such a big deal about how red the sunsets were. And I thought, hmm, could it 
possibly be? Right. Could it have been the same year as Krakatoa? 1883. Yes. I was so excited when I found that. That's a really fun fact. Really fun. Yeah, really. there's a book, Krakatoa, you know, off the top of Was it Simon Winchester? But it's all about, you know, sort of the worldwide phenomenon, phenomena of Krakatoa. And these red skies were something that really were, it was really, really vivid. So, yeah. you know, those yeah. make my days, what can I say? Yeah. So uh, we've, we've, somehow passed uh where we're, we've oh gone my God. Uh, we could so talk much. for hours uh marta in fact marta is going to be um at the old stone house um on thursday in park slope in park slope yes, 7 if you want to continue the conversation um and hear more about the book and and the writing of the book and the stories of laura and um, taste uh, some drinks and food you know that sounds great inspired by Half pint? <laughs> yes. <laughs> so I want to kind of end, uh, Marta, about Laura's travels, which are very interesting, and I didn't know that about her. She went to Muir, Muir Woods, Woods in mm-hmm. San Francisco and also Florida, right? Yeah. So that was a surprise to me, too, because I never would have put them together with Florida. But she and Almanzo end up in Florida for a year where they try their hand doing some homesteading with one of her cousins. Mm-hmm. Uh, but she did not like the heat. <laughs> right, right. She's a she called herself a Yankee, which I found really interesting. Wow, um, that's well. She felt um, she didn't feel accepted by the locals. Oh. But you know who knows what the real story was. But she just felt like a fish out of water. Yeah, and there is only one picture that survives of their time on the Florida Panhandle in a little town called Westville. Mm-hmm. And I will tell you that she looks really miserable. <laughs> yeah. And there's a picture of her with the saw, saw palms, which was so weird. Yeah, that's you really know? weird to see her <laughs> with like, the palmetto. This is not yeah. right. Which, which yeah. one of these things is not like the other, <laughs> you know? <laughs> All right, let me just end with this final quote. Um, and please join us at the Old Stone House Thursday at 7 p.m. with Marta to talk more about uh, Laura Ingalls Wilder. We're going to end with this quote. We will always be farmers for what is bred in the bone will come out in the flesh. Thank you, Marta. See you on Thursday. Thanks for joining us. Bye. See ya. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? 
rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.